This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Um, hello everyone and welcome to uh, the ASIN seminar tonight. My name is Joseph Downing, um, I'm the ASIN seminar series chair uh, for this academic year and I'll be chairing the seminar tonight. Uh, it's part of the 21st annual ASIN seminar series which this year is looking at nation building for the 21st century, reflections on the impact of migration, multinationalism and multiculturalism on the nation building project. We have some great speakers lined up for you this year and tonight we have Professor Charles Tripp from the School of Oriental and African Studies. Uh, he's a professor of politics with reference to the Middle East in the Department of Politics and International Studies who received his PhD from the University of London. He has, a he has been a research associate at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and assistant director for the Programme of Strategic and International Security Studies, Graduate Institute of International Studies, Geneva. He's also served as chairman of the Near and Middle East Studies Department at SARS and head of the Department of Politics at SARS as well. Uh, he's published many well-known books on the Middle East, including Egypt under Mubarak, Iran-Saudi Arabia relations, Islam and the moral economy, the challenges of capitalism, and perhaps his best-known work, A History of Iraq. Thanks. He's here tonight to talk to us about the fascinating issue of the problems of multinationalism and nation-building post-regime change in Iraq. He'll give his presentation, uh, then we'll have some time for questions and answers afterwards. And also we have a small uh, reception, so please don't rush off. Uh, Feel free to hang around and, and continue discussion over sandwiches and drinks. I'll hand you over to Charles. Joe, thank, thank you. you very much. I think I might stand up. I don't know if people can... Can you hear me all right at the back? Yes? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not yet. You will. <laughs> um, actually, uh, I want to thank you very much for the invitation and for the introduction. Um, you asked me to talk about problems of multinationalism and nation-building after regime change in Iraq. I don't know whether wittingly or unwittingly you couldn't have found a better illustration of one of the problems of multinationalism and nation building in Iraq. This is a photograph of an Iraqi dictator, uh, or a statue of an Iraqi dictator, being overthrown by Cambodian troops in the American forces with an American flag over his head. So you could argue that uh, multinationalism came home to Iraq uh, in 2003 in a way which perhaps wasn't necessarily intended by those who set the question for the seminar. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, it does underline some of the problems. And I suppose what I'm going to try and look at today is thinking about not so much um, multinationalism as a given, but trying to think about um, nation building and state building in Iraq. And in fact, uh, again, uh, with my apologies to those who organized this seminar, I think I tend to put the emphasis in terms of uh, historical possibility more in terms of state building than of nation building. But of course, nations or the imagination of nations often comes out unwittingly of the process of state building. And so what I'm trying to look at, I suppose, looking at through Iraq, but just thinking of more general processes, is the question of the state and the nation, not as historical or sociological givens or political givens, but actually as terrains of struggle, both state and nation. Uh, and therefore, they are terrains of struggle, both material and ideational. And I think that that's worth bearing in mind in case one starts trying to define one or the other, categorize one and the other. If one thinks about the state as a terrain of uh, political struggle, there's the obvious struggle, which is the attempt to capture the state, uh, to extend state power, to capture state power, uh, and to develop state power, and often the violence at the core of state power. But 
one could also argue there's another kind of struggle which is always going on to define any given state in any situation, which is defining the boundaries of the state, both, or not necessarily even, the territorial boundaries of the state, but the boundaries of the state and its uh, associated society, uh, the boundaries between private and public, uh, the boundaries and the nature of the power of uh, the state and the power or the rights of the subject. And you can see that that's a struggle that goes on, not just in Iraq, but is going on around us even now in debates about what is the British state and how does it define itself. So I think that I would put a lot of emphasis on thinking about how the state has been struggled for and uh, what the outcomes of some of those struggles are before one starts talking about the uh, nation associated with it. But equally, I would argue that the nation is a terrain of contestation uh, as well. In some ways, I often regard the term nation as uh, a label of convenience used to cloak a field of power. Uh, it is, in many ways, uh, defining uh, an area and a particular kind of struggle to control the narrative that will define the nation. And it's not so much a thing or even a discourse, but in many senses, a field of contestation. Um, and of course, that has huge implications for those who find themselves within the embrace, the alleged embrace of the imagined nation, uh, because they are subject to those who are trying to map, uh, simultaneously map and dominate uh, the political field. And often, of course, that's been associated with ferocious struggles uh, to make the political field coterminous uh, with the nation. So in this respect, I would argue that state building, the struggle to define what power is and what the subject is, is in a sense entwined with the notion of uh, the nation itself and with nation building. So those are just some general remarks which I'll go on to look at in the context of Iraq. And I think that, uh, as Joseph said, one of the books I'm, I'm probably better known for is writing the history of Iraq. So I'm afraid I'm going to take you into history somewhat. We're glad, not necessarily very ancient history. If this was a Baathist audience, as it used to be, or there were Baathists in the audience, which there might be, for all I know, uh, there was sort of a point where somebody would jump up and say Iraq is a 5,000-year-old nation, and I would have to spend the rest of the lecture trying to justify why it wasn't. Uh, but I think that uh, what I'm trying to look at now is looking at the way in which power was constituted in Iraq and what kind of legacies that may have left to look at the period after 2003 for the implications, in other words, that came through uh, in terms of the uh, construction of the state and the construction of any kind of national imaginary uh, that was associated with the state. So thinking about the first part, which is thinking about state building uh, in the early years of Iraq. And in some senses, it looks like a very conventional, and that's the conventional narrative of the British invading, occupying, and setting up the structures of a new state. Boundaries, uh, territorial boundaries, uh, parliament, monarchy, army, the public institutions of the state. And so, in a sense, what you see and what is often privileged in a certain kind of account of the emergence of Iraq is the emergence of the, uh, of the public state and its public rationale. Uh, but I would argue that behind it, and in many senses preceding it, uh, was another kind of organization of power, uh, which in the end was to determine how that public state functioned and some of the problems that it was associated with. In other words, the networks of privilege and patronage uh, that uh, both preceded and ran in and behind uh, the public facade of the state itself. Um, a fluid... Uh, fluid uh, network in some ways, depending on who was in, who was out, who was in favor, and who was uh, uh, having access to the state itself. And this, I would argue, gives rise to what I call the shadow state 
uh, in Iraq. That is that you have on the one hand uh, the, um, the public state, but then you have behind it something else, another kind of association, another kind of operation, uh, which I call the shadow state. And what's interesting about that is how that begins to exert a hold on people's imagination, but also, of course, on the machinery uh, of power itself. And this, as you can tell, owes quite a lot to the whole idea of the network theory of power and the discursive construction of power itself. So on the one hand, uh, if you look at the founding of the Iraqi state, uh, historically, and I suppose as a political phenomenon, you have to think of, and it's very much how a certain kind of presentation of the project was, uh, was put forward, as a revolution from above. It was, in a sense, uh, the modernizing vision of liberal imperialism, um, underpinning the system, obviously, of League of Nations mandates, which uh, Iraq was, uh, as far as uh, the international community was concerned, and implemented, in theory, by enlightened elites that would be trained by uh, in self-government and the arts of self-government by Great Britain. And so Britain drew up, if you like, a model, a pattern uh, of power in the public state uh, based on the ideal of a parliamentary democracy uh, and a constitutional monarchy, operating according to the so-called Westminster model uh, that the British uh, loudly proclaimed they were seeking to achieve uh, in Iraq to permit precisely national self-determination. Uh, the notion that the nation of Iraq would emerge out of a process of the uh, uh, parliamentary system, the uh, representative system, and the constitutional monarchy, that this would begin to create something that one would think of as the Iraqi nation. So one can see how already the British were apparently laying down the lines of how it was that the narrative of the Iraqi nation uh, was to be formed. But equally, it was to be formed not simply through the uh, institutions of governance, but also by the civil rights uh, for all Iraqis and the guaranteed collective rights of recognized minorities uh, in Iraq itself, usually defined in either religious or in linguistic terms. So in many senses, that was the claim, the rationale of the British occupation of Iraq. And that was, of course, uh, what they were mandated to do under the League of Nations. It was to create a new nation on the basis of a new state uh, and the uh, revolution from above was supposed to create the state framework in which this new nation begins to take on a sense of and a possibility of self-determination. But of course the British were undertaking something else at the same time. They were proclaiming and achieving the uh, measures that would be associated with the establishment of the public state, but on the other hand, uh, one has to look at the procedures by which they mediated and they handled power in Iraq under the occupation. Um, the whole system was being operated by British political officers who had what you might um, politely call a weak attachment to democracy and democratic principles. But they had very strong views on how order should be maintained. So in a sense, uh, they were also had very strong and, uh, if you like, uh, imperially constituted views on how you maintain order in a so-called traditional society. Uh, how to look to traditional leaders of uh, defined communities based on, frankly, ruthless experiences that the British had had in other parts of the empire. They brought that lesson to Iraq. So there was, in a sense, uh, an ambiguity, even a schizophrenia, about what the British were trying to achieve in Iraq. On the one hand, creating this new framework of a public state that would create the uh, basis of national self-determination and civil rights for the Iraqi people, but on the other hand, creating... Uh, and using uh, the networks of power that they thought would be more conducive to the kind of order 
that they believed uh, was uh, in the interests of the empire and to some extent uh, congenial to their own views and also to their own prejudices. I mean, one of the things that, again, comes out of the, the writings of British colonial officers serving in uh, Iraq, in a sense, the people, the worst people you could possibly imagine in charge of trying to um, uh, set up a, uh, a free or a, a democratic society, is, of course, the colonial prejudices about the capacities of the Iraqis. So on the one hand, they were setting up this state, but on the other hand, they didn't think the Iraqis have a hope in hell in trying to organize it. And when they talk about the Iraqis, they usually talk about Arabs, Kurds, Persians, uh, and uh, Turks. They don't really talk about Iraqis themselves. So a whole wave of, if you like, colonial prejudice about the inability and the incapacity of these local peoples to really get the hang of uh, a modern and a democratic state and to make in, uh, democratic institutions work. And this is what I would call the infantilism of colonialism. In a sense, infantilizing the people of who, for whom they're in charge. And one of the things one sees through that very quickly is that when, of course, quite understandably, the Iraqis began to object that somehow the real power wasn't working quite as the British claimed they were trying to establish and trying to stand up for their rights, then you had these very waspish comments by British colonial officers that, that all the Iraqis uh, become a nation of effendis. And instead, they said, this is a whole nation of lawyers in a very sort of bad, pe uh, petulant and bad-tempered way. In other words, as soon as the Iraqis start to stand up for their rights within the notion of the public state, the British dismissed them as troublemakers, lawyers, and people not worth taking consideration of. So you have this strange implementation of what I call the dual state in Iraq. On the one hand, the public state, but on the other, much more effective in terms of the dispensation of power and the mediation of power, uh, the uh, shadow state behind it. So for the Iraqis, of course, we're perfectly all aware that this strange thing was happening, and they had a very delicate uh, uh, phrase to express it, which was the peculiar situation. The peculiar situation was supposed to represent, on the one hand, the public facade of power, parliaments, elections, and so on, but behind it, a structure of power that owed nothing to the public institutions of the Iraqi state and was dependent upon British-supported networks of association, of relation, of family, and local communities and notables accountable to Great Britain and not to the Iraqi people. So, in a sense, uh, the Iraqis could see exactly what was happening and often wrote about it quite interestingly and amusedly, uh, in a sense. Um, but the outcome was not amusing. The outcome was effectively the production of an oligarchical rule in Iraq uh, and an authoritarian rule from the center. The Iraqi state, in other words, became the vehicle for power, privilege, wealth of those who were in at the beginning. Um, the state servants, the army officers, the Hashemite court, the new men of uh, the Iraqi state, who made sure that in many senses their story, their narrative of what the Iraqi state was and what Iraqi identity was to be about was to be the key narrative that determined people's political future. And the importance of that is that when you look at the organization of the shadow state, when you look at the organization of power from the shadow state, it's far from being, in a sense, something that is uh, universally accessible to all Iraqis. Far from it. It instituted, I would say, a very ferocious system of inclusion and exclusion on which power was to be determined within Iraq itself. And some of the excluded from the narrative of the Iraqi nation and the, uh, the power of the Iraqi state uh, were, for instance, the Kurds. The Kurds were simply excluded. They were troublesome. They had to be separately administered. Uh, they were seen to be, in a sense, uh, a remote and ungovernable, but yet to be forcefully governed 
part of Iraq. And outrageously, when the British um, were recommending Iraq for its uh, independence before the League of Nations in 1932, they cooked up with Nouri Said, who was one of their chief, as it were, uh, allies within the Iraqi political elite, uh, a completely bogus document for the League of Nations about uh, how the new Iraqi independent state would guarantee the rights, the collective rights of the Kurds. Uh, linguistic rights, religious rights, administrative rights. Uh, in other words, many of the things that the Kurdish groupings had quite understandably been petitioning the League of Nations about had been so concerned that they were going to be handed over to not so much an Arab government in Baghdad, but an oligarchical government that didn't rape them at all or only cultivated part of them. And of course, uh, Nouri Said and the British uh, concocted this document, which was then put before the League of Nations, and uh, it stopped the French and the Italians from objecting to what the British were leaving behind, and uh, uh, the British uh, recommended Iraq for its independence. It was granted its independence, and the document was promptly <coughs> forgotten, ripped up, uh, and so were the rights of the Kurds. So, in a sense, that one moment when there was an attempt to uh, form a, a recognition of collective rights uh, became clear that these were not going to be recognized in the same sense as those who were in on the surface of power. The other group that was excluded uh, from this form of exclusion and inclusion were the clerics of the Shi'a uh, communities. Not all of them. Some were taken on board, as it were, as part of the, uh, if you like, patrimonial picture of Hashemite power in which clerics, both Shi'a and Sunni, uh, would be included within the, uh, within the grasp of the, uh, of the Hashemite realm. Uh, and, but it wasn't, and it certainly wasn't the Shi'a as a whole who were excluded. It was very much their religious and communal leaders. These people, as far as the British and many of their young Turk, Ottoman, uh, Iraqi allies were concerned, uh, were obscurantists, they were fanatics, they were, had no sense of the modern world, they couldn't run a modern state, and therefore, in a sense, they were to be relegated uh, and not to be incorporated into that state. But there was a third grouping, which, in a sense, uh, was influential in what the narrative of Iraqi state and nation became, which was, of course, radical social reformers. They, too, were written out of the story, as were emerging peasant organizations and the nascent trade union uh, and working-class organizations of Iraq itself. These were not to be part of the national story uh, of Iraq in any meaningful sense. They were to be excluded from state power, they were to be administered by the state, but they were not to be part of the national story. So again, you have this way in which the way in which power has been disposed of begins to determine what the dominant narratives of the Iraqi state are to be. In other words, if you weren't recognized by the British and their successors, uh, as useful in some way for their state project uh, and for their kind of social order, then you were marginalized. Uh, you were written out of the dominant narrative, and you were written out of it not simply in a kind of literary sense, in terms of historians, the projection, the sort of uh, 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 discursive production of the new Iraqi state. You were written out of it because you had very distinctive treatment by the two methods of sanctions which the Iraqi oligarchical governments used very freely uh, to uh, boost their power. One was violence in terms of the use of the Iraqi armed forces to conquer the provinces and to eliminate troublesome marginal communities, uh, or at least their troublesomeness. Uh, and the other was, of course, uh, the, what worked in terms of the um, uh, early part of the state, which was the distribution of land. Uh, you were not to be assigned economic resources in terms of land, and then eventually in terms of oil revenues, uh, if you were to be marginalized and written out of the Iraqi national story in the most important respect. So you have this conjunction, if you like, of a 
a state structure emerging, as I said, a dual state structure emerging, in which public power, public rationale is the facade for another kind of much more ruthless, one could say, uh, a much more exclusive form of power uh, behind it. So I would argue that when you look at the foundation of the Iraqi state, and of course it was carried on long after the British left by the allies of the uh, British at the time and by many of the people who wanted to get the British out and in a sense reproduced in one form or another, this peculiar experiment in nation building, I would argue, involved a very distinct kind of violence, uh, a violence of trying to bring so many histories into one story, one story that was to be dominated by those who held uh, political power at the center. And so therefore, I would argue that if you look at that brief summation of the founding of the Iraqi state, one has to think about the way in which it confirms the view uh, that the nation is a terrain of ideological struggle, the idea of the nation and the reality of the nation, reflecting and in some ways following the struggle to define the political field and through the organization and the deployment of state power. So in other words, these are three processes and three ideas strongly intertwined. And if one sees how they played themselves out, you begin to see how a distinct form of state organization emerges in Iraq. And of course, uh, with it, uh, a distinct interpretation of what uh, nationalism should mean uh, in Iraq itself. And the question which you may begin to think about given the title of the lecture is what's the bearing of this on the present? Well, I would argue that what one is seen in Iraq under the occupation of the American-led forces and under the Ba'ath before them was the survival of the dual state. In other words, the dual state that the British founded uh, in many senses reproduced itself, was a very congenial space in which certain kinds of people and interests uh, developed themselves, and uh, through the force of various factors which I'll talk about, is in a, began to, in a sense, entrench itself in one form or another. So if you look at the period from, say, 1990 to 2003, uh, the period of the punitive sanctions uh, imposed upon Iraq, one of the key ironic effects of those sanctions was, of course, that it weakened the public state of Iraq. In fact, it virtually finished it off. The, the things that were most vulnerable uh, to the sanctions regime were communications, health, the public institutions of the state, uh, education, all the, faci the facets of the public state that in a sense uh, were, uh, had been built up up to a certain point, but they were the ones which were going to be undermined by the sanctions regime. Ironically, the sanctions regime strengthened the shadow state. That is, it strengthened the people who were clustered around Saddam Hussein, his networks of opportunists, family, associates of one form or another, and it in a sense reinforced their hold and their power over the Iraqi people. Things that had been, in a sense, focused on that system of power up to now, now became a life and death matter. To hold the ration book of every Iraqi in your hand, to determine whether an, your son or your daughter or whatever could go out of the country, could receive medical care uh, or whatever, was now in the hands of people who were deeply implicated, not so much necessarily even in the public state of Iraq, what was left of it, but in the shadow state uh, that emanated from the power of Saddam Hussein. So, in many senses, the exact opposite of the intended effect of sanctions took place. That economic sanctions, insofar as they were intended to weaken uh, the regime of Saddam Hussein, to force him to make concessions to the international community uh, that they were demanding as the price of the lifting of sanctions, uh, actually strengthened him. It destroyed Iraq, but it strengthened Saddam Hussein. And so, in many senses, it was the, some would say, the apotheosis of that organization of power. Since 2003, 
one has to think, well, what is the fate of the dual state since 2003? What happened to this uh, shadow state, this network, when exactly Saddam Hussein was overthrown uh, and uh, the Allied forces uh, entered Baghdad and occupied it? So two things became apparent uh, quite soon. One was, of course, that elements of Saddam Hussein's shadow state uh, were alive and well and working in local guise. They weren't a state gathered around Saddam Hussein anymore, but they were effectively the networks which he had often deployed and used and which people had created sometimes to survive the attentions of uh, some of his own close kin. Uh, they were not dissolved. They were, in a sense, very much part of certain forms of organization uh, within Iraq itself. But at the same time, what was obviously apparent in the sense of trying to re-establish a new principle of order in Iraq with that new networks were beginning to colonize the state machinery as it was being rebuilt uh, in the new ministries, in the state agencies, and so on. Uh, and so one has a picture after 2003 of an Iraq in which the public state has virtually evaporated, in which the only forms of power are the occupying forces or the new networks, some of them old networks, which are seeking to appropriate resources to find how to proceed in this new and strange landscape of occupied Iraq. So the battered and fractured Iraqi society fell back onto networks of local trust. Sometimes these networks of local trust can be identified in terms of common religion, common language, common kin or imagined kin, but really, again, that depended upon what was at stake and the place in which it was happening. Was it about security? Was it about protection? Was it about land? Was it about resources? And that often determined as much as any fellow feeling of kinship or religious identity whether uh, a political association would come out of it. And what one saw, of course, were local uh, competitions for leadership uh, and advantage. But all this, I would argue, was reinforced by the very policies pursued by the Americans and by the British. That, in a sense, the British, having <laughs> in 1920 21 set the shadow state, or the dual state, if you like, the public state and the shadow state, off to a good start, uh, one could argue that in 2003 4, the Americans and the British, in their own rather more modest uh, form in the South, uh, tried the same thing out. In other words, what you saw, characteristic of the invasion, the occupation, certainly much of the public rationale of the occupation, the overthrow of tyranny, um, the democratic mission uh, to re-establish Iraqi politics on a new foundation, uh, to remove the, the one constraint, it was often argued, that prevented Iraqis from flowering as uh, liberal Democrats was, of course, the removal of the tyranny of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party uh, as well, to produce effectively a liberal democratic politics. So, you had that as very much the public rationale. And even, one could argue, to be fair, people, well-meaning people, trying to implement that in one form or another, looking for forms of representation, forms of, as it were, reconstitution of the public state, not simply as a, uh, a mechanism of public administration, although there's an element of that too, clearly, uh, but also as a new kind of definition of uh, the politics of Iraq. A recognition, one might think, that if Iraqi politics was to set off in a new direction, then in a sense, uh, the uh, things that had been simply mouthed uh, under the British administration of all those years ago now had to be implemented. There had to be a truly representative framework of power in which the Iraqis could uh, operate and therefore possibly create uh, the, the possibilities of a new future. But frankly, the Americans and to some extent the British did not make it easy. On the contrary, one could argue uh, that uh, they have, may have mouthed 
the words of a democratic, liberal democratic society, but they acted as the champions of the patrimonial state. If you look at the period of the CPA, uh, vast sums of unaccountable money being paid out to their own, American contractors and others, but also, of course, to so-called local leaders, people identified as those who would be useful in the keeping of order within the, uh, within the, the new Iraq as well. Uh, and at a national level, in addition to this, as it were, dispensation of largesse, uh, which uh, wouldn't have been unfamiliar to many of the previous rulers uh, of Iraq, uh, and as emanating from Baghdad, uh, and being completely unaccountable to the people of Iraq itself, uh, at the same time, at a national level, uh, the Americans, it seemed, and the British as well, were only able to see Iraq and Iraqi society through sectarian, tribal, uh, and ethnic politics, the prisms of these. Uh, an Iraqi communist friend of mine, who happened to come from the Shia communities of uh, Baghdad, was, uh, it was suggested that he would be a member of the Iraqi governing council. This was the uh, governing council that was set up in 2003 to give a, a, a facade of a multi-representative Iraq, and it was chosen largely on the basis of ethnicity, sectarian, and other identities. And he was completely outraged, not only by the fact he'd been fingered, and therefore, in a sense, uh, perhaps he hadn't been quite as assiduous as he should have been in his radical revolutionary days, but uh, the fact that he was being chosen, not because he was a communist, but because he was Shi'i. And he said, this is outrageous. I spent my whole life running away from the mullahs. I think they're dreadful. I'm an atheist, and yet they select me as a, they select me as a Shi'i. So in a sense, it was this ascription that you could not read Iraqi society except through uh, these various forms of, uh, as it were, uh, um, religious and linguistic identification. So some would argue that in many senses the uh, communities themselves identified by religious and uh, linguistic identification were being brought into being as social actors through the recognition afforded them by uh, the forces of occupation. Uh, so in a sense the reward and punishment would follow the lines of uh, uh, these sorts of recognition and therefore in, a, in many ways draw it into uh, into existence or give it a sort of spurious existence. One can't help feeling in this sense the preposterous notion that anybody are familiar with the history of Iraq or society of Iraq of, which suddenly emerged of a Sunni community in Iraq. There is no Sunni community in Iraq. Lots of people who follow the precepts of Sunni Islam, there's no Sunni community. But the problem was that having constructed an Iraq in which there were Kurds in the north and Shi'i in the south, whether there's a Shi'i community is another question one could ask uh, quite interestingly, one feels that there was a kind of, what on earth are we going to call these other people who aren't Turkmen, who aren't uh, Mandians, who aren't uh, uh, Kurds, who aren't uh, Shi'i, Oh, we'll call them the Sunni community of Iraq. And of course, it was a nonsense. There was no such thing. And it reminds one somewhat of the way in which it's alleged, uh, uh, certainly a colleague of mine at SOAS, uh, uh, a former colleague, Shalipta Kaviraj, was looking at the emergence in British India of uh, Hinduism and seeing how the category Hindu often becomes a kind of imperial repository for people who weren't Muslim, weren't Parsi, weren't Sikh, in a sense, looking at it as a construction. And then, of course, it becomes a construction uh, of self-identification. So, ironically, one could argue that half of the problem that the, uh, that the, um, uh, that the um, uh, occupation forces created, they created for themselves by saying that there should be something called a Sunni community and that the Sunni that should be represented in the same way as the other communities. And again, very, very questionable. But nevertheless, pouring money and arms in two different directions, which suggests that it was often uh, profitable or otherwise to identify yourself as such. But at the same time, at a national level, 
the occupying forces were reading an Iraq of largely sectarian, ethnic, and uh, uh, tribal uh, division. At a local level, they were recognizing de facto local power. No different in many senses from the way the British had operated, uh, and sometimes operating from the same manual, uh, as a colleague of mine discovered uh, when he spoke to the American tribal affairs officer in the South, uh, that they were operating from a book produced by the British War Office in 1919. So, and, and, not, and he thought it was a bit surprising too, so he asked the, the, the sheikhs, um, what do you think of this? And he said, oh, you know, this guy is terrific, he, he respects us, he knows who we are, very, you know, he knows that, that we're the people who count here. And uh, the colleague said, but, you know, he's, he's, he's using a book produced by the British when they were here, and not only a book produced by the British, but a long time ago. Oh, yes, they said, we gave it to him. Uh, so, uh, so, in a sense, to help him read us better, we give him something that recognized our standing in society. So, you could see there was a cozy and mutual relationship uh, which pr is productive of certain forms of identification, certain kinds of politics, but again, uh, that uh, would not perhaps have emerged unless power had been applied uh, in certain ways. Interestingly, with the collapse of American strategy in Iraq in the period 2006-2008 uh, and the violence uh, that was associated with it, it allowed General Petraeus, who had been quite enthusiastic about this whole notion, uh, to effectively make the making of local deals national strategy for state building uh, and to some extent for na nation building in Iraq. There was this famous uh, uh, slogan that was being used at the time uh, at press conferences and everywhere, which is, Iraqi solutions for Iraqi problems, and it sounded wonderful. But of course what it meant was the kind of Iraq we have recognized will be the kind to solve the kind of problems we've created uh, for ourselves. So in a sense, therefore, it was uh, a, a circular endeavor. I'm not saying this simply to, to say how horrid the occupation was, but to actually say that there's a serious point here that what one saw emerging, not necessarily for exactly the same reasons as the British created the dual state in Iraq, but effectively something that began to look like the dual state of Iraq. Public institutions on one hand being built up, a new bureaucracy, a new administration, a new armed forces, a parliament, elections, and so on. And behind it, a network of people who had, in a sense, very good connections with the sources of power and the sources of resources and the sources of uh, violent sanction. And, of course, violence was part of the game. So an image of Iraqi politics in that curious and terrible period, 2003 to 2008, is, I suppose, uh, an image of a table uh, around which there are ten chairs. And in the middle of the table is a huge fund of potential, anyway, of oil revenues. And you have 20 people killing each other to sit at those chairs. And you could argue that for much of the violence in that period 2003 to 2008 it was people killing each other for mutual recognition in other words to be recognized as somebody entitled to sit at that table and eventually to share uh, in uh, the money in the center um, state power and oil revenues were at stake and a notion that only uh, a limited number of people could uh, could share in it, and those needed to be recognized by the other members of the limited number of people. A wonderful recipe for the reconstitution of oligarchical uh, power. So, how does this fare in the more recent period? That is, the period since 2008, which uh, one could argue, um, and I would characterize the period in the last couple of years, is the period of the re-emergence of the central state in Iraq and uh, the use of armed force to make that uh, credible. 
What one sees, in other words, from effectively 2008 onwards, is how a weak central government, headed by al-Maliki, supported by the Americans, begins to fight back, uh, begins to reassert the control of the central state uh, in various parts of Iraq. And it was fairly straightforward in the sense that al-Maliki is by no means a federalist. On the contrary, his image of a strong Iraq is a strong central state. He had made concessions in some areas, but generally that notion of a, a believer in strong central government, boosted by both the US government and, of course, by those who wanted to ensure the exploitation <coughs> of the oil revenues of Iraq, including his own allies. Somebody who uh, believed, therefore, in the need to reassert the power of the central state across different parts of Iraq, but who at the same time uh, was uh, beginning to organize his own shadow state of networks within, between, and behind. Uh, the public institutions of the state itself. And one sees this in the way he treated some of his nominal allies in government, uh, trying to shift their people out of the Ministry of Interior, their people out of the Ministry uh, of Defense, and of course the old model of the proliferating intelligence services uh, of uh, Iraq itself, two of which begin to take their orders from the Prime Minister's office, uh, and so much so uh, that the identity of those serving it begins to be closely associated with the provincial origins of Amaliki himself. They begin to be called the Aulad al-Hendiyya, that is the, the area of Iraq from which he comes, the, the lads from Hendiyya. Uh, in a sense, falling back on an old idiom, which was in a state where public allegiances are suspect, where ideological preferences are not necessarily a guide to loyalty and, and possibility, what do you fall back on? You fall back on those you trust in some other way because they expect something of you and you expect something of them in return. And in some cases, and certainly in the case of one particular uh, grouping, uh, it had to do with people who now expected, now that their man was in the presidency, that they should have the rewards that went with that uh, in some respect or other. So there's, in a sense, you begin to see the, the central state is fighting back, the central state is recreated, but it's a central state which already if you like, in what some of its way of operation, has behind it a, uh, an, uh, a notion that you don't control things simply by the given chains of command of public office. It didn't stop, of course, uh, al-Maliki from asserting the chains of command. He made great use of his notion of the um, commander-in-chief uh, and asserted himself through the offices of the commander-in-chief uh, across uh, Iraq itself, controlling and determining who got dismissed, who got promoted, who got shifted around in the armed forces, at the same time, of course, as controlling uh, particular uh, armed forces themselves. The Baghdad Brigade and the Counter-Terror Task Force, some would argue some of the better trained elements of the Iraqi armed forces, uh, were, uh, of course, directly responsible to the Prime Minister's office. So, in many ways, the preparing the way was the preparing the way for the assertive use of the armed forces in 2008. And that's the year that I call the reconquest of the provinces of Iraq. Uh, it wasn't particularly brilliant, it wasn't flawless, but it certainly reasserted Baghdad's authority and power in many parts of Iraq. The campaign in Mosul, uh, the campaign uh, against Basra, the campaign against Sadr City, the campaign in Bakuba. Again, none of them were completely without problems, but they did in a sense, allow the vehicle of the public state uh, and uh, of Maliki's control, which were working in tandem, uh, to be able to assert themselves. And one could argue, although it may be an exaggerated way of saying this, that it was also 
uh, quite an elaborate way of preparing the local elections in 2009. Uh, the reconquest, in a sense, was necessary not so much to ensure security for people, but to reassure people that power had now returned to Baghdad and that he could take that power seriously. Seriously, because it had both a deterrent effect, but also because it had the rewards that came with it. And if you look at the results of the local elections in 2009, you could say that al-Maliki's strategy paid off. Not in the sense that he swept the board completely, but certainly in the sense that he managed to displace, and his people managed to displace, a lot of the uh, uh, militias and others that had put their feet under the door in the early stages of the occupation, and at the same time encouraged independence to emerge, which, as we know, independence in many countries are those which uh, blow with the wind, depending upon the power of patronage of the center. So you begin to look at the picture of Iraq uh, created by the, the local elections, and it's not like Maliki has asserted himself right across Iraq, far from it, and it was only in certain parts, but certainly it certainly gave a credibility, an added boost of credibility to the notion that somehow power had returned uh, to the center. One can argue the national elections that took place earlier this year, in March uh, of this year, produced, again, uh, what could be said to be a far more patchy result than perhaps Maliki had wanted. But actually, one of the things that comes out of it is the extraordinary success of Maliki within that framework. In other words, asserting himself, although he didn't get an overall majority, he didn't come out even as the, the bloc with the largest uh, single number of seats, but compared to what al-Dawah is and was, and what he had been and was uh, only three or four years before, and compared to what the power of the uh, Iraqi National Alliance and the, uh, um, the, uh, the, um, um, yes, the Iraqi National Alliance had been, then in a sense, that is Muqtada Sada and the Hakims, then in a sense what he achieved was something uh, quite uh, surprising. And what's also interesting, of course, is the fact that it left al-Maliki in a fairly strong position for the long eight or so months of bargaining that then took place. And one of the weirdnesses is the notion that cops up in the press that Iraq was without a government for eight, eight, uh, uh, eight um, months. Of course, it wasn't. It had Maliki. Uh, and in a sense, therefore, Maliki was busy. And Maliki has been very busy uh, in all sorts of ways to ensure that in, that, in, in whatever the outcome was to be, and it wasn't guaranteed, that he would be uh, very well uh, situated. And the deal that's just been done in uh, November, uh, whereby, in theory, he is supposed to have brought Iyad Alawi, uh, which was the, he's the leader of the bloc that won the largest single number of seats, although, again, by no means an overall majority, uh, into, uh, the, into the deal, is by the creation of something that I would say is absolutely characteristic of the whole notion of the dual state. This is creating a body called the National Council <coughs> for Strategic Policies. In theory, of which Iadilawi is to head, which in theory is supposed to be the body that oversees the kinds of things that were making a lot of Iraqis very nervous about the concentration of power in the Maliki's hands. It's supposed to oversee intelligence, security, national strategy, deployment of the armed forces, and so on. Uh, but, of course, one knows from two indications that that's very unlikely to be the case. Partly uh, that um, uh, decisions uh, which are to be binding, mandatory, have to be unanimous on the council, which is going to be a bit of a problem if Ayanilawi tries to uh, move them in some direction or other. And also the notion that that isn't necessarily or at all going to be the place where power is deposited, in the sense that you create an organization, an institution, precisely to divert the uh, appearance of power and the reality of power flows along 
different lines. So to come to a conclusion, therefore, and think a bit about what this means for the state, but also, therefore, for the nation, and uh, if not so much multinationalism, <coughs> then, therefore, what the narrative of the Iraqi nation might be and nation building in Iraq, I think that one has to think a bit about the resilience of the dual state and the fate of nation building uh, in the Iraqi context. And there are, I suppose, three major areas that could give one some cause for concern, not just if one were an Iraqi thinking about whether uh, the promises of the public state, the parliamentary republic, will actually be realized in, in the near future, but that come into it as well, but also thinking what kind of national community emerges out of this sort of powerful discourse of state building and dual state building uh, at that. The first is the concern that many have expressed in Iraq and elsewhere about the political impact of military developments, the kind of way in which this particular institution of the public state has been rebuilt and therefore uh, what it has also been used for and what it might be used for. And people who have got more experience this than I have talk about a curious feeling of schizophrenia among certain members of the Iraqi officer corps. A feeling of schizophrenia in the sense that on the one hand, they are part of a reconstituted army, professionally trained, re-equipped by the Americans, in which people are promoted on the basis of merit. Uh, and for many of the both former Iraqi officers and those hoping to join the new Iraqi officer corps as part of the, uh, the new Iraq, a notion that finally, or once again, the professionalism of the Iraqi army will be recognized. And a notion here of uh, a corporate uh, professionalism, which has been a key part, you could argue, of the history of the Iraqi armed forces, um, in which the political favoritism, the playing around, the purges, the politicization of the score is seen by many as being a terrible distraction and something that effectively destroyed the professional competence of the Iraqi armed forces. So, on the one hand, a notion that this is a republic which is taking us seriously as professional army officers. It is giving us the resources, it is giving us the training, it is promoting us, it is making us into what we think we should be uh, as the guarantors of public order and the defenders of the republic. But on the other hand, the schizophrenia caused by the fact that it's disrupted this promotion on the basis of merit by favoritism, by a knowledge that you have to be careful about whom you know and where, how you shine. If you become too competent, too visible, too obvious, then the eyes of those who are in authority may regard you as somewhat of a threat. And in the um, campaigns of provincial reconquest of 2008, it was certainly notable that one or two officers who did very well in those campaigns suddenly found themselves transferred rather speedily at the termination of the campaigns to office jobs in Baghdad or rather minor posts within the Ministry of Defense. In other words, things that weren't necessarily commensurate to break the link between them and their field command. And if that is, and I'm not saying it is necessarily, but if that is a practice, and if that practice reproduces itself clearly, uh, one could argue that if that is combined with using the army chiefly as an internal security force, then clearly that's a recipe for the politicization of the officer corps. And it's exactly the pattern followed across the Middle East, and not only in Iraq itself, for the, uh, for the politicization of the officer corps. So that's why uh, Iraqi friends uh, joked at the fact that the uh, chief of staff of the Iraqi armed forces um, earlier this year, when the Americans talked about um, withdrawing or accelerating withdrawal of their forces, uh, he said, no, no, we're not ready yet. 
And many of my Iraqi friends took that as a, a statement saying, we're not ready to take over yet, so you can't go yet. In other words, a notion that the Iraqi army is not yet in a position to assert the role that it should properly play within the politics of the Iraqi state as it watches corruption, transfers, favoritism, politicization uh, unfolding around it. So again, it's not to say that this is a pattern that will inevitably happen, but it is something which in many ways has a real effect on a public institution, an institution of the public state which you could argue could well become uh, an agent in, uh, in uh, the political shaping of Iraq with all that, that the fallout of that for uh, what the future of the parliamentary republic would look like. So that's, in a sense, one area, I think. The second area, I think, which is uh, the problem that's arisen in many ways about the very authority of the state itself, the very authority of the public state and, to some extent, the authority of the shadow state behind it. And the, the first and most obvious group of Iraqis who would be very wary of both kinds of state, and are rightly so, are the Kurds. What is their attitude in the future to the authority of the Iraqi state? Not to what they can squeeze out of it, not what deals they can do, but looking at Iraq uh, as a state and looking at Baghdad as the centrality of the state. Uh, and whether the Kurdish leaders' views, the Talibanis and others, are in any sense matched or reflected by a new generation of Kurdish uh, um, uh, young people who don't necessarily see any necessary connection between being Kurdish and being Iraqi. Uh, and therefore, in a sense, it's a question which is a generational question, but also to some extent about uh, the record of the uh, Iraqi state in Kurdistan uh, in the future. So I think, again, one has to think about, as far as the authority of the, Kurdish, of the Iraqi state is concerned, is its authority in the northeast corners of Iraq in any sense at, uh, equivalent to that in the center of Baghdad? The second concern within that about the authority of the state is if you go back to the image of the, uh, of the table and the, and the chairs around it, the ten chairs, one has to ask, if you look at the present arrangement, have they all found their place? In other words, of the 20 who started out in 2003, have ten now been marginalized, killed, or whatever? Are, are the ten sitting around the table, the ones who feel they should be sitting around the table, do they recognize the others on that table? And the question that one has to ask then is, whether they accept the rules of the game. Whether, in a sense, it doesn't occur to people quite soon that actually the pot would be shared, go further if it was shared between eight people, or between six people, or between four people. So, again, the question of the, the stability of oligarchy under such conditions is, is I think, problematic uh, uh, in many ways. I think a third series of concerns within that uh, notion of the authority of the state is something that hasn't much been looked at in the literature on Iraq because people have been so mesmerized by sectarian and ethnic and tribal things, is class resentments. That is, that if you're establishing an oligarchy on the basis of severe differentials of income and life chances, then how stable can that be in terms of the generation of a, uh, uh, a class politics in Iraq? Not a class politics that takes the old classical form of a Marxist party speaking for uh, a mobilized working class, but class resentments of oligarchies in one form or other. In other words, the dynamics being quite similar. And one could argue that the Sudrist movement has already reflected an element of that. Of course, they become players, but it is certainly something that has fed into uh, the power, the social power of the Sudrist movement. One could also ask that about uh, the Goran movement in Kurdistan as well. Uh, a question, not so much of class, but of notion of a resentment of the hold of the oligarchs on the resources of the state and, to some extent, on the definition of the nation. 
Uh, and one of the problems that, in a sense, awakes one to the, problem, uh, the, the danger this may cause is the apparent continued uh, negligence of much of the political class of the oligarchs of the terrible condition of public life in Iraq. Public services, employment, uh, um, uh, and uh, in that sense, therefore, uh, and of course, the, the as yet little done or nothing done for the millions of internal and external refugees in Iraq itself. And at the same time, the retention of repressive trade union laws, which somehow survived the uh, purge of Ba'athist legislation. One of the laws that um, uh, Bremer, Paul Bremer, found so congenial from the Ba'athist period was the law that criminalized trade union activity in public sector industry. And he retained that on the books. He got rid of all many of the others, but that was a very congenial one because, of course, it was congenial to his notion of private enterprise and the free enterprise of Iraq. So, again, a question of are we seeing similar patterns repeated in the re-establishment of the dual state in Iraq that effectively enforces quite uh, rigorous and some would say quite ferocious forms of in exclusion as well as of inclusion? And does that lay a charge for the future? And against this, of course, the vast potential of oil revenues and how that might, of course, reinforce uh, the effect on uh, uh, the, 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 the structures of patrimonial and oligarchical power. Uh, and against this, against the power of violence, against the power of oil revenues, against the entrenchedness of apparently a mutually recognizing oligarchy, what hope is there for a language of rights uh, in Iraq? Uh, potentially, of course, the language of rights is subversive of the whole system. Uh, and one could argue that if you look at the Iraqi constitution, if you look at the public rationale of the public state, uh, the language of rights is to be embodied in the uh, practices of the uh, new Republic of Iraq, but there's not much evidence of it at the moment. And so in a sense, one has to think in that sense, therefore, of whether that's, that's part of the problem. So one looks, in other words, at whether the way in which the uh, public state is emerging or re-emerging in Iraq is creating already uh, some of the groundwork for a politics of dissent and contention, precisely as people try to monopolize the narrative of the state and thereby monopolize who counts as part of the nation. And the final uh, uh, concern clearly is whether Iraqi politics can ever be those of Iraq again, ever. And so uh, what that means, of course, therefore, is whether Iraq as a state is no longer autonomous but becomes a political field in which others play out their interests, their concerns, and in a sense the cultivation of many who are disaffected within the state itself. For instance, can the United States ever deny the importance of Iraq to its own strategic, not simply to its strategic position, but also to its imperial prestige? Uh, and so again, much of the notion of why an influence should be maintained, even uh, if they may not be totally certain about how to exert that influence, is this notion of ensuring that somehow it remains within uh, an American sphere of influence. As far as Iran is concerned, clearly again, for historical and all sorts of other reasons, a notion that Iran cannot be uninterested in what happens in Iraq, and nor can it be neglectful of the opportunities presented uh, to, in some sense, uh, play a role within Iraq itself. It's not necessarily what that Iraq role will be. I mean, clearly there are Iranian preoccupations about American presence, about American influence, about American forces, but there's also a preoccupation about what Shi'i power means in Iraq. That is, the curious ambiguity, not even curious, but understandable ambiguity, uh, of, the Iraq, of the Iranian political clerical establishment 
to the re-emergence of Najaf and Karbala as centers of Shi'i learning. Uh, precisely because for many Iranian clerics, they represent an alternative to the Khomeini, Khamenei, let alone, uh, style of governance in uh, Iran itself. So, again, it's not simply that uh, Iran plays a straightforward role, but there is something of concern there, something of concern which uh, may impel different parts of an Iranian power to, uh, to play a role in Iran. The question of Kurdish autonomy, again, like the Turks, the, the Iranians have not been above shelling villages in Iraqi Kurdistan to remind the Iraqis not to help uh, the KDPI and the other uh, Iranian uh, Kurdish movements. And so in a sense, therefore, there are lots of reasons, clearly, apart from the major one, uh, of uh, why Iran should continue to be interested in or not uninterested in Iraqi politics. And at the same time, I could argue for the GCC states, for the Arab states, Syria, but also the GCC states as well. But one could argue that as a more Iraqi national politics begins to emerge uh, in which Iraqi politicians want to distance themselves from Iran. So, of course, uh, you could say it's more reassuring. Reassuring in the sense that trade links with Basra, uh, re-establishment of Iraq as a major oil producer, but then one also has, and mustn't forget that one of the uh, problems was that in the uh, recent election campaigns in Mosul, uh, Al-Hibba national list, one of what you'd argue is one of the most Iraqi Arab nationalist lists, put forward um, electioneering material in which the map of Iraq amazingly took in Kuwait as a, n a normal part of Iraq. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, although it was withdrawn when very many shocked Americans, particularly in Baghdad, said, you can't do this, uh, what it showed, of course, was, well, it showed possibly two things. One is that the people drawing, drawing up the election material, electioneering material for, uh, for Al-Hadbah saw no problem including Kuwait since it is part of Iraq, so what's the problem? And the other could suggest that the electorate they were appealing to in Mosul thought there was no problem either. Of course it, Kuwait's part of Iraq. So in a sense, the more, if you like, nationalist Iraq becomes, the more concerned uh, some in the Gulf must be. And finally, of course, there's the Turkish view of Kurdistan and the peculiar uh, or a very distinctive set of relationships between uh, the Turkish authorities and Turkish uh, investment and the uh, Kurdish regions. Again, not to say that there's military intervention, there may be that, but simply in the scale of investment and the scale of, uh, of interests, uh, it would be part of it. So, again, thinking about the effect of these uh, concerns around Iraq for uh, playing uh, the effect on Iraqi state politics is the effect it has on the national imaginary of Iraq. And one of the great banes of Iraqi history has been the fact that various groups of Iraqis have been seen to be far too preoccupied with what happens in Cairo, in Tehran, in Saudi Arabia, uh, beyond the borders of the uh, Iraqi state, and therefore have become suspect. And clearly, again, insofar as Iraq may be seen as a terrain of struggle for uh, uh, proxy wars or proxy struggles, proxy competitions by people in the neighborhood, then clearly, again, uh, that's something that has to worry people. So it's a predictable outcome in some ways, but it shows the importance, once again, of the link between the development of the state and how it develops and the development of the nation and the national narrative. Now, I, like many of you in the audience tonight, had the privilege of studying at SIAS um, at some time or another. And one of the highlights for me, and I think for you guys as well, 
was the distinguished, eloquent and informative lectures that Charles Tripp always gives. And I see tonight is uh, no exception to that rule, so thank you very much, Charles. Very, we really appreciate you coming to the LSE. Um, now I'd like to turn this uh, <coughs> seminar over to the floor for questions, and just briefly, if you could just try and keep your questions short and to the point, and uh, try to make them questions and not comments, as I think, you know, there's a lot to say on this is issue, and, and we want everyone to have a, have a say. So if I go to the, to the very keen gentleman over here, please. Yeah, I think that uh, the question of regionalism within Iraq uh, has certainly come up because it was, in a sense, the counterpart. I mean, up to up to two thousand and three, when people talked about federalism in Iraq, it was a um, a, uh, a euphemism for Kurdish autonomy. Uh, and after two thousand and three, other parts of Iraq began to look at the possibility of striking out in, in, in a similar way, guaranteeing or setting into uh, some kind of legal or institutional structure some of the independence they, they'd won through the collapse of the public state in Iraq. So regionalism, the point you made about regionalism within the Shia of, of southern Iraq, it was actually always very contested. Um, and my argument would be that al-Dawa and al-Maliki are certainly not regionalists. Now, whether they're not regionalists because they are ideologically against the notion of sub-regions, or was it because they can't stand Muqtad al-Sada and they couldn't stand al-Hakim, and not simply as personal individuals, but what they represented in Iraqi politics. So, perversely, or not perhaps particularly perversely, um, the um, uh, al-Hakim uh, and the what used to be called the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution became the most open advocates of regionalism. In other words, they were the ones talking about creating a larger southern region of, uh, of the south. Now, what was interesting is that Muqtad al-Sada was also, was also against regionalism, but de facto power in the south until 2008, uh, certainly in certain some of the smuggling areas of Basra and others, was very much in the hands of Muqtad al-Sada. So he saw a great deal of utility in doing a deal with Fadila, and this, again, was not about principled regionalism. This is about getting your hands on the loot. This is about, in other words, business propositions in the southern part of Iraq. Maliki changed that game in 2008. And, of course, Fadila hasn't done terribly well and, in a sense, has its fingers wrenched off the oil pipelines and others in the south. And, to some extent, to a large extent, uh, um, the Sadris movement as well. So what you saw in the election of 2010 is something that one could say... I, I think marginalizes the notion of a southern regionalism uh, in Iraq. Um, the people who came off worst, apart from Fadila, so is of course Al-Hakim, which in, within that alliance with al-Sada, it left al-Sada as the dominant force. So if you have as a dominant force within Iraq now, however, whether they get on with each other or not, you have uh, you know, al-Sada, al-Maliki, and al-Lawi, none of them. Uh, so one could argue that it's also been strategically useful to dampen that down because, of course, it raised the specter of 
we have our oil in the south, we have our oil in the north, and what's that going to do for Anbar and the west of Iraq? And that, of course, fed an insurgency. So, but I think regionalism, it doesn't seem to me to be something that's, that's really a current preoccupation uh, in, in Iraq, uh, in southern Iraq. I'd say a gentleman here in the blue shirt, please. Oh, okay. so I would like to ask two quick questions. One of them is, a centralized Iraq, isn't it a recipe for disaster given the uh, history of Iraq? and its uh, antagonism around various groups. So wouldn't it, uh, wouldn't it make sense if we have like a very loose federal Iraq instead of having a centralized Iraq, which could create in the, uh, in the future another like, uh, you know, another ground for clash, as well as between like traditional and the Iraqi, uh, like uh, central Iraq. Um, if you could just keep it to one question, please, and then I'll come back to you later on, just just so that everyone has time to, to contribute. Mm. Okay. Was it related to that? Was it? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's fine. I think that the uh, the question of the the strong central state and the federal state, you can see why for in Kurdistan the federal state looks very attractive because what it means is self-government and uh, the getting the, the the Baghdad out of uh, Kurdish affairs. Um, and I think that one of the questions one asks is that you could say there are two nightmares, at least two, probably more, hanging over Iraq, coming out of their history. One is the nightmare of Saddam Hussein of, and his predecessors. That is the brutality that a strong central state has meant, not only for the Kurdish people, but for people across Iraq. So what has it led you down to? You know, so in a sense, many Iraqis thinking about the future of the state, how do you prevent that from happening? How do you prevent that from happening again? One of the answers was federalism. But then there's another nightmare, and you can say that one in many people's eyes, not in Kurdistan, but again, across much of the non-Kurdish Iraq, is the nightmare of the last five years, which is what happens when power devolves. What happens when power devolves is that you get turf wars, violence, local leaders, sectarian, you know, sectarian cleansing. You have the sort of the, the recipe for what was effectively a civil war in Iraq. And... Um, it's not surprising that someone like Maliki, who is now talking about you know, the state of law, the, the, the central state, and so on, has a good deal of appeal, even amongst people who hadn't heard of him before, I didn't think, because what they're concerned about is, uh, as, as an Iraqi friend once said, is, you know, he had no love of Saddam Hussein. Thank you for getting rid of Saddam Hussein. Uh, but why do you live, leave 50 of him behind? In other words, the notion that after the removal of Saddam Hussein, the cent strong central power, People had to deal with unbelievable, unknown centers of power, which made their children unsafe, their lives unsafe, and so on. So I think in, in Iraq, there is a real dilemma about whether um, federalism will be a solution of any kind for Iraq, or will it be the recipe for the breakup of the state? And if, again, if you add to that notion, which is not completely fanciful in Iraqi history and historiography, and if you like, the national narrative, is that Iraq is surrounded by enemies, and the world created Iraq, and it'll carve it up again when it wants to. And you've seen that surface in different political, different political fields. So I, my, my own feeling is that given that fear, given the concern about what happened when the central state collapsed in Iraq, it's not as if it wipes away what Saddam Hussein did, but it certainly uh, makes many people look for uh, a strong central state. Not an unresponsive central state, but a strong central state again. Except perhaps in Kurdistan, where again, there's an interesting question. And it brings on to the question of Kirkuk, because 
In that sense, it's precisely the fear of what might happen in Kirkuk that draws many people away from the idea of a federal Iraq. Because the federal Iraq immediately suggests, where do you draw the boundaries of the federal units? And Kirkuk personifies or uh, you know, embodies, in many senses, some of the problems. And some of the problems are not just about you know, greedy Kurdish politicians on one side and ambitious Arab politicians on the other. It's also about the Turkmen. It's about the histories of migration, forced migration, about deportations, resettlements. It goes back into the history of land distribution. Who wants to open all up that again? Uh, and in a sense, therefore, it's much more than just about a Kurdish Arab issue or a Kurdish Turkmen issue. Uh, and so my own feeling is that uh, if a compromise can be worked out on Kirkuk, which is not impossible, again, not necessarily seeing all the people who are presently involved in it as being the ones to do it, but certainly not impossible, um, then it might reassure people about the possibility of assigning proper spheres of responsibility or answerability within the new Iraq. And in a sense, if that's possible, then people might look in a more relaxed way at uh, uh, various other, as it were, boundary drawing um, uh, exercises in other parts of Iraq itself. But at the moment, coming so soon after the civil war of 2005-2008, then you can see why the boundary drawing of Kirkuk looks like the recipe for ethnic cleansing. In other words, why attached to that notion of the boundary drawing is the notion that the next move is that, or in order to get the boundary on this side, we've got to chase people out of that village, that suburb. So I think that in the present condition, it the, probably the best answer is effectively what the answer that's been achieved at the moment, which is put it, you know, freeze it, put it on hold. Don't put it at the forefront of all the other issues that need to be dealt with. Um, so my feeling is that it's going to be a kind of um, a, a, a weather vane, a weather gauge of how well the new Iraqi Republic can resolve precisely those problems that go not simply to the composition of Iraq, but as you said, to the fear of what the Iraqi state might become. Excellent, thank you. Um, if I can go to the gentleman over here, please. Yes, uh, when we say Kurdish people from Kurdistan, this part of uh, Iran, Kurdistan of Iran is uh, a, a part of uh, big Kurdistan, mm. and uh, Kurdish people is the victim of the Lausanne Treaty. Mm -hmm. And before Lausanne Treaty, there was Silva Treaty. Silva Treaty was the new amount of big Kurdistan. <coughs> so, what can British government do for Kurdish people after this big mistakes? How can they <laughs> What can they do? What should they do? <laughs> what can they do is probably what they did in 1931, which is basically wash their hands of it, frankly. I mean, my, my own, my, you know, in a sense, that's, that's part of it. That, that um, even a more immediate concern of the Kurdish people, which was what did the British government do in 1988? What did they do in 1989 during the Anfal? Uh, what did the American government do? And in a sense, they only started to do something when the massive number of Kurdish refugees in 1991 poured out, not simply across the Turkish border, but into the arms of the waiting television cameras. So suddenly, something that had seemed like a defeat, uh, a victory, you know, the, the removal of the Iraqi army from Kuwait, suddenly looked like a humiliating defeat because it was so obvious that the British and the Americans had done nothing to protect the Iraqi people in the north or the south, but of course that wasn't filmed, and so in a sense, they didn't get that protection. So my feeling is, unfortunately, one could argue in terms of the ethics of international politics, that the British government will feel absolutely no obligation to do anything about Lausanne, 
1947 in Palestine, partition in India. These whole, you know, if you start unraveling the imperial history, you can tell that the British government would be preoccupied. And Tony Blair thought he was right just by saying, sorry, 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 sorry. Uh, and of course, you know, I don't think the Kurdish people would think that was very satisfying. But realistically, what, what can be done? I think that in many senses, uh, as far as, um, uh, you know, what, what's realistically possible in terms of power politics, I don't think the British government comes into it at all. I think they're completely out of it. But one could argue that one of the interesting relationships will be the emerging relationship between Turkey and Kurdistan. And that seems to be quite interesting because you could argue that up to about 1995, the relationship between Turkey and Kurdistan, and Iraqi Kurdistan rather, uh, was um, largely that of security. In other words, military bombardment, invasion, incursion, and so on. Yeah, exactly. So all the time. What's interesting is that one of the, it seems to be a very deliberate strategy of the Kurdish leadership in Iraq is to, re, to establish economic links with Turkey. So in other words, they weren't just dealing with the military security elite, they were dealing with an economic, an emerging economic elite in Turkey. And one could argue the shift in Turkish politics has taken place to some degree with the, with the power of the civilian against the military, the question of whether the military has its all its own way in southeastern Anatolia. And with it, there's been this extraordinary Turkish investment in in Kurdistan. I haven't been to Kurdistan recently, but people talk about going there and seeing you know, it's Kurdish construction companies, Kurdish consumer goods, Kurdish, the Kurdish economic presence. And what is less visible is the economic presence of the Talibani family and the Barzani family in investment in Turkey. So in a sense, they are part of the same group. So uh, and one could say that's cynical and it's feathering their nest. Well, it may be, but it's also uh, a way of, I think, in which the Iraqi Kurds have realized that they can never rely on the British, the Americans, these remote powers who will pull the rug from under them at the drop of a hat. What they've got to deal with are their neighbors. And the most powerful neighbor, in many senses at the moment, far more powerful than Baghdad, is uh, the Turkish Republic. And so to cultivate that kind of relationship may also, who knows, have an effect on the Kurds' relationship with the government within uh, Turkey, the Turkish Republic itself. So I think it's much more a kind of a regional local solution emerging out of that than something where you look at Kurdish history and you think, why rely on any of these outside powers? Because they say one thing, they do something, and then they let you down. And in a sense, it's a very bitter series of experiences for the Kurds of Iraq and, and elsewhere, too. Excellent, great. Uh, I'll take the lady here, please. Okay, thank you for an inspiring talk. I would like to hear more about um, the Iraqi diaspora regarding what was set on challenging the dominant narrative just as much as inventing new networks and new narratives. Well, there are, I suppose there are, there are several kinds of Iraqi diaspora, and I think that um, one could argue that part of the Iraqi diaspora was responsible for the kind of narrative that the Americans went into Iraq with. If you think of uh, al-Hakim or Chalabi and others, the people that were suggesting <laughs> that Iraq had been ruled by a Sunni minority uh, crushing uh, a Shia majority. In other words, it was very much in the interest of a certain part of the Iraqi diaspora to portray Iraq as South Africa, whites ruling a majority of blacks. And in a sense, the Sunnis were the whites and the Shia majority were the blacks. And so it accorded very much with a sense of majoritarian rule and possibility. Um, I'm not saying that was by any means all of them, but certainly it gave a narrative power to uh, Rumsfeld and Bush and the others when concocting a reason to invade uh, uh, and occupy Iraq. But of course, there are other features of the Iraqi uh, diaspora, which I think are much less 
uh, articulate in the sense much less plugged into Western forms of power, which is you think of the what two even three million refugees uh, outside Iraq now, people forced out during the civil war, uh, as well as people of course who left uh, uh, before as well, and for them. I think they challenge the dominant Iraqi narrative in quite an interesting way, which is that, just as one could argue, one of the tests for the new Iraqi Republic was about how you draw the internal boundaries. One of the tests for the new Iraqi Republic was how you, how you make provision for the return of refugees. And the return of refugees is absolutely fraught because, as you know, many people fled and they were forced out or intimidated out or they feared to be where they were, both internal refugees and external refugees. Um, and their houses are now being squatted in, occupied. So it opens up a whole series of questions about whether an Iraqi government made up of some of the groups that were responsible for <coughs> the refugee problem, can, are they in a position to resolve that problem? And it, it's a problem, it seems to be a, a, a key question which will challenge the Iraqi dominant narrative in two ways. One is that it challenges the question about whether the Iraqi government is really for all its people. So in other words, are these people being looked at as Iraqi citizens, or are they being looked at as returning Sunnis, returning Shi'i, returning Christians, returning whatever? So there is a sense in which uh, that part of it. The other part of it is it, it tests the narrative in the way that I talked about, is that as far as the dominant narrative of the Iraqi state as reproduced by its government is concerned, is it still blind to people it does not consider worthy of attention? In other words, the underclass, the lower class, the refugees, the powerless, the voiceless. In a sense, it'll be one of the great moral tests, I think, of the Iraqi Republic to see whether it not only formally treats all Iraqis as equal citizens, but whether it actually makes provision for them. And frankly, on record so far, it's not very encouraging. But who knows? I mean, it might change. So I think you have, it's two ways in which it strikes me that that kind of diaspora is actually going to be, an it not to be they're organized or it's a militant force that's going to return, but how it deals with it will tell you quite a lot about uh, the Iraqi Republic and the new formation of what it really means to be a member of the Iraqi nation, if, if such a thing takes on credibility. Excellent. I'll take the young lady over here, please. Uh, uh, the two nightmares that you just talked about seem to be not only a nightmare for Iraqis, but also for the occupied uh, powers and also Iraqi neighbors mm. and Iraq's neighbors. So my question is that what do you think Iran and America could do in Iraq to avoid that those two nightmares from becoming, uh, from uh, being realized? And also, do you think a friendly Iraq to America could also be a friendly Iraq to Iran? I think on the first one, you could argue one of the interesting things is, is the points in the last, what, seven years where Iraq, where the US and the Iran have actually cooperated in Iraq. And where they cooperated, not necessarily because they knew they were cooperating, but they certainly did, was in trying to uh, set up a, an electoral framework, a parliamentary framework for Iraq. Uh, and in 2005, as I was told, Iranian electoral agents were as busy in Najaf and Karbala as American electoral agents were in the, the, the posha quarters of Baghdad. <laughs> so in a sense, it was that notion of both of both countries, I think, had an interest in ensuring that uh, a um, uh, a more representative and, if you like, uh, stable structure of Iraqi politics came out. Now, what's interesting about that is both of them had illusions about what that voice would then say. And one of the interesting things there is, and this is the the point I suppose one comes to, is that you know what they cooperate on is a stable Iraq, 
I think they could cooperate on that. The notion that an Iraqi government should come out, which isn't constantly being threatened either by military coups or whatever. But can they resist the temptation if that government produces, or if that process produces a government unfriendly to them, or as they regard it as unfriendly to their interests, can they resist the temptation to play games? And I don't think either will. So I would say that, yes, there's plenty of reason why both Iran and the United States should be able to cooperate on looking for a stable Iraqi government, but the, I have grave doubts about whether either of them uh, is able to, as it were, take a self-denying ordinance to ensure that they will not intervene, even if Baghdad produces a government which then says, we'll cut, you know, we, we, we don't like, uh, uh, we'll cut certain links with Iran, you know, this is not a place we want to be associated with, this is in a sense that, uh, so really, would Iran take that line down? No. And I think that that's what I meant towards the end, which is that regional powers and outside powers feel that there's so much at stake in what Iraq might become that they'll be tempted to try and maneuver it, manipulate it in one way or other. And I don't think either of them will be very good at it. And they'll be there, they'll make trouble, they'll make problems, but in the end, an Iraqi state logic or, or, or political logic will work itself out, which might be problematic for both of them and might actually reverberate on both of them in curious ways. So, it, yeah, it's, it's a rather depressing idea that, in a sense, yes, it's rather like the Arab-Israeli peace, peace process. You can see exactly what a solution should look like. <laughs> you, you have grave doubts about whether either part can get there. Great. Thank you, Charles. Um, if I just take the, the, the man here with the grey jumper. Yeah, you, sir, please. Um, I'm curious about what you were talking about, the Iraqi military and the depoliticization of it well, the record of Maliki is not good in that regard, in the, and some would say that um, after the Americans had spent, a, and I speak to an American officer who was responsible for the training of the Baghdad Brigade, you know, the, one of the best trained their horror at seeing the whole thing taken over by the Prime Minister's office. In other words, that they'd trained an instrument of effective warfare and internal security, trained along American lines, equipped by America, but also with an esprit de corps within it, which in a sense meant that people obeyed orders, and it was, it was, it was an efficient military organ. And for the Prime Minister, under the guise of you know, enhancing security, and also under the guise of ensuring that um, uh, Iraqi forces returned to Iraqi control, nabbed it and took it over. Now, what I don't know is what's happened within it since then. You know, some of the officers who, out, who shone, maybe they've been shifted around. So I think one of the great fears of Maliki was that um, he was somebody who felt that whatever reason, whether it's his idiom of power, whether it's because he lives in a dangerous neighborhood or whatever, he felt that he had to have at his disposal a military, military forces that would obey him, not his minister of defense, who was a dodgy Kurd or a dodgy this or a dodgy that. In other words, they had to obey him. And uh, by doing that, he's been quite busy in the ministry of defense. He's been busy in the armed forces. Uh, and so as the armed forces get bigger, what one has to think about is Yes, there's the training program for the United States, which is training people technically. And that's why people talked about the schizophrenia. That, you know, on the one hand, you're having cohorts of officers being produced according to the latest doctrine of US, uh, US military doctrine to act efficiently and effectively in a, in a setting. And then the realization that 
if you act effect effectively and efficiently, you might be victimized by the people back home, as it were, back in Baghdad, or you can still act like that to your blue in the face, but you won't get promoted because you're not close enough to those people. So a notion you're having to play two games. And uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, the problem is that the only research one can do upon it is talking to, you know, disillusioned American officers or the occasional disillusioned <laughs> Iraqi officer. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do systematic research on, but it's clearly something that Maliki has shown himself quite adept at and thinks may be a natural part of the game. And equally, his enemies regard it as something that he's adept at and would rather block him from doing. So that's what I mean by, by the Iraqi government is politicizing, in some senses, the Iraqi armed forces. But also, they're in a politicized situation. You think of the Iraqi armed forces, whether on the Americans or the Iraqis, uh, are used as an internal security force. So of course, that politicizes them in some respect, because it means that they're being used against other Iraqis. Now, if they don't feel that those are the other Iraqis they should act against, then clearly that sets up a, a question about what kind of mission they're being asked to ask to, to, to go on. If we can take a question from the young man here, please. Just a, uh, question about this heterogeneity of um, Iraqi society that you talked about, mm. Sunni uh, Shias and this and that, that we in the West seem to talk about a lot. To what extent, I, didn't, I couldn't quite understand from your lecture, that you, do you deny that these differences exist? Or to what extent do they really, these differences are ideological? Or to, to what extent are the leaders of these groups or sects looking to have a share in that table that you're mm. you talking about? Is it, I don't know. No, the differences exist, certainly. I mean, there are Shia, there are people of Sunni, there are people who are Mazdiya, Madian. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lots. But what interests me is the politicization of those differences. And that's, in a sense, what I was talking about in terms of when one thinks of the state and national identity or subnational identities, it's not that these things simply exist and a politics sort of emerges spontaneously out of them, because I think that's dangerous in terms of reproducing a kind of essentialist view, that if you are different, you have a different politics. Well, no, not necessarily. What's interesting to me and depressing for many Iraqis is the way in which public politics or politics has been operated and state creating has been operated in such a way that it makes those differences relevant. So in other words, if you think that you're not getting a job, not because you haven't got the qualifications, but because the key qualification you need is to be a member of this group or that group, whether it's a religious group or a tribal group or an ethnic group, it doesn't matter. But in other words, you begin to think of your situation as being due to somebody ascribing uh, an identity which you may have been aware of, but you know, it didn't seem to you to be part of your existence. You know, you may have married somebody from another group altogether. You may so. Again, one of the things one has to think about is what is it that the the, the, the way the British created the state did to uh, sharpen and politicize ethnic, religious, and tribal division. And I'm going to say that a great deal, and and I suppose uh, not just the British, but their successors. So Saddam Hussein, although I would deny this whole notion of you know, a Sunni minority oppressing a Shia majority, it's certainly true that under Saddam Hussein, uh, two things reinforced this politicization of difference. One was the notion that he worked on a very discriminating regime. It didn't discriminate against people because they were Shi'i or Kurdish or, or Sunni. He was discriminating against everyone if they weren't close to him. And in a sense, therefore, he drew them into a network of people that you could trust and a network of people you can't trust. And that wasn't founded on pre-given identities. It's how you politicize them. So he would, look, he would create sheikhs, effectively. He would, create he would revive a sort of, sort of tribalism, and he would pour resources 
down that man and his family. So he became, as a sense, the tribe. So anybody who could associate themselves with that man suddenly find it politically advantageous to do so. So in that sense, I think he, he politicized it. The other sense in which he politicized it notoriously was, of course, that given his intolerance, you could say, of oppositional politics, if you stood against the kind of Ba'athist, Saddamist narrative of Iraqi politics, the only way you could survive as a political actor was either in exile or underground. And underground in Iraq often meant to be able to rely on, as it were, familial loyalties, loyalties of place, and often those overlap with loyalties of kin, sect, and tribe. So by the time Saddam goes, the only visible parties on the horizon were based upon ethnicity or based upon sectarian identity. Uh, and that's why, of course, there was no, Kurdish, uh, no Sunni community, because they, in a sense, had far more divisions to be concerned about than simply being Sunni. And suddenly they were being told, where are the Sunni representatives? You know, what could be ridiculous? You know, it, it was a sense that something that the Shia, you could say, had long been uh, uh, aware of, the Kurds had long been aware of, not because they were Kurdish and Shia, but because the state in the way it was constructed, ever since the British and perhaps before, had made sure that those identities were politicized. Sunni not. So in a sense, there was no Sunni politics in Iraq. Of course, there was an Islamist party, there was a Muslim Brotherhood, but there were lots of other uh, kinds of politics. And that's what I meant by looking at the way in which the state politicizes and therefore makes politically relevant difference. It's not because the difference exists, it doesn't exist, and they invent it. The difference exists, they use it, and then uh, it politicizes it in a certain way. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Tripp, for answering questions tonight. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you sharing your, your extensive wisdom with us. <laughs> yeah. um, well, before everyone gets up to go, our next seminar is on nation building in Ghana by uh, Dr. Michael Lamar. It's in um, December, on the 8th of December, so please feel free to come along. And we have another event uh, related to the Middle East um, on Lebanon in March. So please pick up a schedule for our seminar series and um, feel free to come along. And don't go yet, there's a, there's a small reception that needs to be worked through. So uh, please make use You've of it. You've got the budget, you might as well drink it. Well, yeah, yeah uh, that's it, exactly, definitely. So any, any help is greatly received. Thank you.